to be with you. My name is Chris Oswald. Uh, as uh, Ryan mentioned earlier, my wife Angela and I are here, and we just feel honored to be here as the children are trickling out to children's ministry. You want to open your Bibles to the book of Acts with me, Acts 2. We'll be looking throughout the chapter, but maybe to begin with, look at verse 44 or so. Um, I was thinking earlier this week about people I know whose lives were changed by an early exposure with the church. And I was thinking about two women in particular that I know, one in her 60s now and one in, one in her 40s. And both of them grew up in really difficult childhoods, um, difficult, perhaps even abusive homes. And uh, both of these women now, um, I, don't, I don't know if you ever really get past those difficult childhood experiences entirely, but I can say now that as I know these ladies, long after those childhoods have passed, uh, those abusive, difficult experiences as little girls are not the defining moments of their lives. And in both of their cases, uh, that has a lot to do with this, honestly, kind of improbable, truly miraculous exposure or connection to a local church. Throughout, in the midst of all of this difficulty, they, they kind of just found themselves in, in local churches. The 60-year-old woman that I know, she, her mother was an alcoholic, uh, abusive, you know, tended to stream from guy to guy, and um, uh, somehow this mother had decided that a, 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 a way that she could punish her children was to send them down the street to this local church. And um, I mean, not that the mother had ever been to this church, but she just had this idea that like, I'll, I'll show you, you know, uh, to her little girl and to her, her son, like, you go down the street and go to this church. And so sure enough, these, uh, this little girl and her brother would walk down the street to a little average local church. No one remembers the pastor's name you know, this is not, no one's written a book in this church. The, their sermons weren't posted online or anything like that. This, this, this little girl and her brother would walk down the road, walk into this local church, and they would do the kinds of things that kids do in local churches. They would take part in choir, and they would make bird feeders out of toilet paper rolls and peanut butter and bird seed, and those are a mess. I remember my kids coming home with those, like, thanks, guys, appreciate um, you know, they would do construction paper cutouts of Jesus, and they would play duck, duck, goose, and so on and so forth. And so here's this 60-year-old woman that I, that I know who, who all of her life kind of forked because she happened to walk into a local church that had people there who were honestly the opposite of her mother and the various men that came in and out of that home. And she would go to this little church and she would eat graham crackers and hear Bible stories. And there was just this moment throughout her week where all of the chaos was set aside and she entered into rest and truth and light. And this, this other woman that I know, she's about 40 years old. I know her better and it's the same kind of deal. Uh, her mom wasn't necessarily abusive but tended to move from guy to guy throughout the country. They lived in all sorts of cities all over the U.S., and sometimes they would live in roadside motels, and sometimes they would live at the YMCA, and often they would live with whatever guy they had met at that particular time. And in the same way, this little girl very improbably 
just sort of would wind up at vacation Bible schools or other church events, and so that her childhood had this exact same experience where she would kind of walk in and be welcomed almost immediately, and before she knew it, she's making crosses out of popsicle sticks, and she's singing about Zacchaeus and Abraham, and in both of these cases, those improbable encounters with a local church, like, honestly, those little things, crayons, popsicle sticks, songs about Zacchaeus, were the very tools God used to protect hurting little people and show them that all of life doesn't have to be this way. And I was thinking, just, just this whole idea of just living in this bitter and stingy and resentful and chaotic environment where, where honestly you don't even know when the conflict is going to come and it comes so quickly. Things can be normal and suddenly someone's throwing something. And as a little child, you don't have any expectation, any idea how that's going to happen, when that's going to happen, and that's your life. And then you walk into a place where people are nice to you and there isn't anger and no one's counting the graham crackers. There's a generosity that's happening. And honestly, like that's, to me, simple question, like how, 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 how does that happen? I'm thankful that it happens. I see it happening. But as a pastor who's been pastoring for 20 years, I want to know how do I help create places like that and people like that? And I, let me just be clear, like that's success. That's what success is. That is what a successful life is. A successful life is to be what that church was to people in your life, right? Like, let's just, let's just say, if we can successfully show the love of Jesus, the orderliness of God, if we can successfully show the generosity of the Lord to people, we can be what that, those churches were to these little girls we will have been successful. So the question is, how does that happen? How, how, do, how do people and places become generous people and places? Well, the text that I chose to discuss and answer that question, I think is a really good text for it. First of all, because it, it outlines the very behaviors we're thinking about in verse 44 of Acts 2. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any has need, had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I think that's a great text because it shows us this very same culture that we're seeking to create, this very same idea of glad and generous hearts. That's, that's what we're looking for. But I also think it's a really great text because at the beginning of the chapter, chapter these people weren't doing these things. All right? Like at the beginning of this chapter, the beginning of Acts 2, these people weren't glad and generous. So that means... We could look at what happens in the middle and say, well, okay, this stuff contributed to them going from not being glad and generous to being glad and generous. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're just going to look through 
the events, the transformational truths that took hold in these people's lives that contributed to their becoming glad and generous people overseeing a glad and generous place. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk through, just a quick exposition, these seven kind of transformational truths that these people encountered in Acts 2 that, that contributed to them becoming glad and generous. I'm just going to go do a quick exposition through those, and then we'll, we'll come back around and ask, like, well, how do these actually affect our relationships and so forth? So first point, I'm just going to give you seven points really quickly. The first point is, is that they encountered the revelation of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus. In verse 22, Peter tells these people, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, and God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So this idea of the revelation of Jesus is really simple. All of my points are really simple, by the way, and it's simply this. They didn't know Jesus, and then they did. They understood specifically this idea, this honestly earth-shattering, paradigm-shifting idea that God gave himself to the world. So that's, that's the revelation of Jesus. We'll revisit that again in a moment as we apply these. Um, the second thing is, is the repentance for killing Jesus. Repentance for killing Jesus. So these folks came to understand that at a spiritual level, they were personally responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Um, by the way, I'm not going to talk about this again, but, but I'll just throw this out to you. I believe that that admission of yourself, I am spiritually responsible for the death of Jesus Christ, is the price of for admission into a humble, godly community. Like, you don't get in. You're not in the community unless you see that about yourself. Like, it's, it's essential that individuals understand their spiritual contribution to the death of Jesus. Twice, Peter mentions this important issue. Twice, he lets them know, you have killed Christ. And their response always surprises me because these are, by nature, nitpicking, litigious people. And you would expect them to say, well, I, I, no, that wasn't me. I, I didn't kill Jesus. You know, that was, that was the, the high priest. Or that was the, no, they actually own it. This is an incredible miracle that in verse uh, 37 it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So there's a, a repentance for killing Jesus. That's a part of this, uh, this synergy that builds this, this generous community. Number three, redemption, the redemption of Jesus. So uh, they've just acknowledged to partaking in the crucifixion of God, right? They, they understand that Jesus was God, the revelation of Jesus. They're, they're owning, they're repenting of, their part in killing him, and they're carrying this massive weight, and they cry out in verse 37, what shall we do? And Peter says in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the, forgiveness of your, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, 
everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So, so their massive guilt is met with a more massive grace. They encounter forgiveness, free and unfettered, uh, far, far surpassing even this great crime of crucifying Christ. Number four, the resources of Jesus. Again, in verse 38, Peter mentions what we kind of sometimes call the glorious exchange, and that is that Jesus takes away our sin and gives us his righteousness, right? And in this particular verse, in verse 38, Peter mentions that by saying, you will receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when we speak about the resources of Jesus, we're simply referring to the Holy Spirit as the power that enabled Jesus to love so well. All right, and we'll, we'll, we'll hit that again in a moment. Number five, the resurrection of Jesus. Twice in Peter's sermon, he references the resurrection of Jesus. He says that their murderous rage against Christ wasn't enough. And in verse 24, he says, God raised him up, speaking of Jesus, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And again in verse 32, Peter says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So that's number five, they saw the resurrection of Jesus. Number six, they saw the reign of Jesus. In verses 34 through 35, Peter quotes from an old psalm, it's, uh, it's Psalm 101, and he says, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What's, what's Peter getting at with sit at my right hand until I make your, your enemies your footstool? He's, he's referencing the reign of Jesus. As Jesus ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father to reign over all things. We've already heard this reference this morning. To reign as the sovereign king over all things. So this is the sixth thing they're, they're seeing, they're, the reign of Jesus, that Jesus is now sovereignly reigning over all the world. And then number seven, they see the return of Jesus. Again, in that same text, that's verses 34 and 35, it says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that word until is is key. It's saying that Jesus right now is reigning spiritually at the right hand of the Father over all things in sovereign power. And at some point in future history, when the enemies of God have been brought into functional subjection to him, he will return to the earth and reign over the earth in physical presence in a renewed creation. So those are the seven things that are kind of dropping out of heaven onto the heads of these people, and they become generous. <laughs> they, be, they become glad. They, they, they become giving people, okay? How? Like, how does that work? What's actually happening here? Well, as we, as we think about this, like, I don't want you to think that what's happening here is that, uh, is that a new standard has dropped from heaven, a new, a new level of aspiration, and that really all this is is like the gospel's just a higher standard that, that tells us like this is what love looks like, right? It's, it's, not, it's not that. This isn't a model, mostly. I mean, this is an incredible model. It's an incredible standard, but it's not that mostly. What this is mostly is truth that's changing people from the inside out. 
And I, I felt like I needed to, to, to offer that qualifier just because I don't want you to think like what's happening here is just a bunch of good ideas that have finally realized themselves in the course of history, and now man is taking a step forward in their knowledge. And that's not what's happening here. People are being changed. I want to make sure that's clear. So in what ways are these truths transforming people? Again, this is, this is honestly just, just an effort to try to understand and explain, like, how do these things lead to generous people? And I'll just go through the list again and kind of give you some thoughts about some of the ways these things lead to generous people. So let's, let's think about the revelation of Jesus. How does realizing that God gave himself transform our understanding and application of generosity. Well, for one thing, it really pushes generosity forward in the story. I think, uh, I think that if we were to describe the character of God, it may take us a while, as we're describing the attributes of God, it may take us a while before we got to generosity. Right? I, I, I don't know. I, I, maybe. maybe. I, I think it would have been for me that way. I, I think I would have said holiness and, and so on and so forth first. It would have been a while before I got to the idea of God's generosity. But of course, the gospel, it's really about all of those things coming through this essential attribute of God's generosity. So, so if we say that the gospel is a world-changing thing, and we, we say that, and we also probably need to begin to realize how central generosity is, just in change in general, but also in God's change, like the way that God changes things. Generosity kind of winds up moving from the back, like, like say we're at a children's play, and we, we kind of make generosity like, like a rock in the play, like there's a little kid in a rock suit, you know? And, and then he kind of like moves forward in the stage and becomes a leading role. Generosity moves forward in the economy of God. Like it, it's, it's something that seems more important to us than it ever did before. Uh, the other thing that you might want to say about generosity is that the definition of generosity changes significantly through the gospel to move from giving things to giving yourself. That's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big deal because really if that's really what generosity is, and that's, that's, by the way, that's what God did, right? The, the shift from old covenant to new covenant is, is in many respects a clarification on this point that we are not primarily attached to God because he sends rain, Right and for, and gives us gives us good things like those wonderful things, but that what he had been doing through those things all along was giving himself and 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 creating the category through which he could give himself in Christ. So generosity becomes, I think, harder because it's no longer about like a percentage of giving or or just like doing something for someone or kind of operating out of our own excess. Like the definition of generosity like becomes to give yourself. That's a pretty big deal. And I think you could maybe even like add to that and say to give Christ 
by giving yourself. That might be the best definition of generosity. And as we look back to those days where those women are little girls and they're in the church basement, like there's people down there who are like just saying, here's my time. You, you, this little kid can't offer me anything. Like, like, I'm not going to end up in a better place in heaven or anything like that for, for cutting out uh, Noah's Ark uh, out of a construction paper. Like, it's just this, here I am. And friends, like, if you've been married for a long time, um, one of the interesting things about marriage is that there can be pronounced seasons uh, where you can be so lonely and next, and while you have someone in bed next to you. Like, like, you can begin to live parallel lives. So I've been married 23 years. Our kids are adults. You can begin to live parallel lives. And you begin to ask, well, what's going on with this whole parallel life thing? And you realize, like, our definition of love and generosity has changed. And it used to be, like, let's give each other ourselves. And now it's like, let me take the trash out for you and why don't you do the dishes for me, and so on. And it's this organization of, essentially, a checklist that manifests itself as love rather than just, like, let me give you myself. And, and man, again, as a parent who's raised three adult kids, what a common error to fall into when you think you're doing right by your kids because you've got them in the activities they need to be in and you're providing for them and so on and so forth. And, and how often... Having raised these kids, have I realized at various points I was giving them all these things, but I wasn't giving them myself. You know, this very same thing applies to interacting with deeply broken people. They know that you're not giving yourself. They know you're just doing a thing. And when you decide, like, no, 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 I'm going to, like, give you myself. I'm going to invest myself in you. It's, it's noticeable. It's, there's a difference there. That's, that's one thing that's different because of the revelation of Jesus. Let's just talk real quickly about it. We're going to run out of time before I get through all these. It's okay. You won't be missing that much. But let's, uh, let's talk about uh, repentance for killing Jesus. Well, what does that do for us? How does that affect our, our hearts? Here's, I think, you could say that, that um, if I were looking for people to hang out with and people to like enjoy or trust... I may move a layer deeper than whether they're followers of Jesus or not. And I may simply ask this question. When you look back at history, do you have a tendency to assume that you would have been one of the good guys? I think that is a massive predictor of humility Character, intelligence, wisdom, proper self-assessment, properly doubting one's motives. Because if you keep reading all the old stories and you kind of somehow magically in your imagination appear with the white hat, like you're always on the right side, you're never the Nazi, you're never with Genghis Khan, you know, like if you, if you keep doing that to yourself, then what you're doing is you're imputing an altruistic understanding of your ability to sort things out, and that's going to be an implication in your relationships. You're not going to doubt yourself. You're not going to 
You're not going to wonder whether maybe your perspective is wrong. You're not going to actually like, have any real appreciation for your capacity for self-deception. So, so if I was just picking people like, let's form a subdivision of people that are less annoying than other people, I would say, like, this is the question. Like, could you have ever been a Nazi? And if they said no, like, sorry, you can't, you can't live here. <laughs> I say that because it turns out that this question, did you kill Jesus, winds up being massively important in the way we view ourselves, trust or mistrust our motives, assert the rightness of our emotions over everything else. This question, like, did you kill Jesus? And your ability to either say, yeah, yeah, I mean, spiritually, I am responsible for the death of Jesus, and physically, I make no pretension that if I were in the crowd in that day, I would not be part of the mob. Like your capacity to see that about yourself is a massive predictor to your capacity for humility. I mean, think of it this way. The Apostle Paul, one of the most brilliant men who, of, of any generation, like this, this guy could you know, be on the Mount Rushmore of IQ and intelligence and capacity and so on and so forth, he really does believe he's the chief of sinners. He really believes that about himself. And here's the, the question I've always looked at is, at a church is just like, can we get a room full of people who all believe that about themselves? Because if we can, and those people believe they're forgiven, of course, uh, but if we, can, if we can get a room full of people together that believe that about themselves, then judgment becomes much like... like sinful judgment and boasting become much less likely to occur. And those are the very killers of community. I guess I could just summarize by saying this. Pride is a killer of community. It's a killer of generosity and relationship and so on. What if you had a community full of people who believed they were guilty spiritually and would have been historically guilty of the worst crime ever to occur? the crucifixion of Jesus Christ between two thieves. What, what does that do for a home? What does that do for, for parenting? What does that do for a marriage? What does that do for a church? Uh, the third thing we talked about is the uh, centrality of grace, uh, the redemption of Jesus. So this is just real quickly. Uh, there are many relationships which are broken by bitterness, resentment, and record-keeping that if they were to experience the transformational grace of Jesus, would, the Bible, um, the Bible makes clear, that if they were to experience the transformational grace of Jesus, they would forgive. So that many relationships that are blocked up by resentment and bitterness if those, relations, if those individuals had indeed encountered the redemption of Jesus that we, as we see described in Acts 2, they would be able to forgive. And my, what a difference that would make. Uh, the resources of Jesus, speeding up here. How, 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 does, how does Jesus giving the Holy Spirit, and this sounds like a really stupid question, really obvious question. How does functionally Jesus giving the Holy Spirit to his people and taking away their sins 
affect their capacity for generosity? Well, in, Paul, in, in Galatians 5, Paul lists some sins of people who are not in the Spirit, right? So let me, lead, let me read some of these to you. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. So if I were to comb through the files, like break into a marriage therapist's files, you know, in the middle of the night, and I would comb through all of the files, what would I see? I would see this list. I would see this list. This, 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 is, this is the list of things that break communities. This is the things that break relationships, and they would be right there. And then Paul describes, gives another list immediately following, and it's in verse 22 of Galatians 5, and he says that there's this other list for people who are in the Spirit, and that list includes love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And friends, you know if you've been on, I think you've probably been in some broken relationships. I think you've probably been in some fights and quarrels. I think you've probably later realized, oh my goodness, if I'd only been more patient or if I'd only been more kind or gentle or if I'd only been able to control my temper or my speech and so forth, you've experienced it enough to know the difference that could be made if a relationship or a community or a place was built primarily on the Spirit of God and the great exchange has taken place and that these sinful patterns are being put to death. I mean, you'd notice that, right? The resurrection of Jesus. I really wanted to touch on this one for a moment. Easter's next week. What, what, What does the resurrection of Jesus do for our relationships? Well, here's, here's one implication. It means, that, it means that the sins that people commit against us are not the last word about us. It means like people are going to hurt you. They're going to do terrible things to you. You're going to be treated unfairly. You're going to be victimized. And those things aren't the last word about you because they weren't the last word about Jesus. If Jesus was treated unfairly, he was treated cruelly, he was treated unjustly, and these things look like, at the moment, like this massive exclamation point of worldly authority and anger, like, look, we just killed him. But it's just not the end of the sentence. The last word always goes to God. And the resurrection reminds us that like, evil doesn't get the last word. And bitterness and resentment and anger and cruelty don't get the last word. That, that like the God of the universe, he gets the last word. So that's, that's encouraging. There's this other thing, too, to think about. In that text that I read earlier from, uh, from, from Acts 2.44, uh, you, you see these people giving things away. Right? Like, they're giving things away. They're selling things. And I think we need to come to terms with this idea that generosity is just, is, is, is at, at the very least, generosity fits in the same category as sacrifice in general. It's losing stuff. It's giving stuff up. It's like, like giving up your time or giving up your emotional energy or giving up your money, even when you're not really sure you have those things. 
It's like, that's what, that's what generosity is. That's why it's hard. It's like giving yourself when you're not sure you have self to give. But all I'm saying is, is that generosity is just this little microcosm of the cross. I mean, what, what you're seeing at the cross is you're seeing the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, walking through Psalm 126. Psalm 126 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And what you're seeing at the cross is you're seeing the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit sowing in tears. That's what's happening. They're giving. They're laying down. They're putting out. There's an emptying. There's a sowing in tears that's taking place between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what you see on Easter is that those who have sown in tears are reaping in joy. And Jesus is the first fruit of this new harvest, and he will receive eternal glory for the sowing he did in obedience to the Father in the power of the Spirit. But what you're seeing at the, at the cross is you're seeing God sow in tears. And then what you're seeing in Easter, what you're seeing at the resurrection is you're seeing them reap with shouts of joy. It says in Psalm 126, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what Jesus is doing in the resurrection. And it's, 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 it's got all kinds of implications and all kinds of power for us in all kinds of ways. But one of the things it means is, is that my sacrifice is sowing. And, and that's all it is. And then when I sow in tears, that I will reap in joys. Uh, let's just end with this idea. Pentecost, Pentecost was the harvest festival. That's what they were doing. That's why everybody was gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the bringing in of the harvest. This is an agricultural moment. And this thing had been celebrated, you know, all kinds of years. But this Pentecost was a harvest festival for the Trinity. Like it was their festival this time. They were the ones celebrating the harvest. The harvest of Jesus as the first fruits from the dead. The bounty, the fruitfulness that's coming in as a result of their sowing in tears and the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory. Like this is their harvest festival. So what does that mean for generosity and for community? I just don't have to be afraid of it. It, it doesn't mean that it's not difficult. I think if it's not difficult, maybe not isn't generosity. I don't, but, but, but I don't have to be afraid of it because I understand that those who sow in tears shall reap in joy and that Jesus has gone before me to prove it is so over and over and over again. So yeah, I think, I think that this, this transformation we see from people at the beginning to the end, they weren't generous, they are generous. I think that's because they encountered at least seven totally transformational truths that changed their hearts and made them what you see. You know, I was talking about these two women that I know, and, um, you know, one of the things that they had in common 
This is sad. I don't know. If you've ever grown up in that kind of a home, you'll know exactly what I mean. One of the things that these two girls had in common was that their moms would always place hope in the next boyfriend. Like, the way that works is like, you know, maybe this new boyfriend will be good to us. Maybe he will provide. Maybe he won't drink, or maybe if he does drink, he won't get angry when he does, or maybe he'll leave me alone when I'm in my bed at night. And there's this kind of weird hope that, that gets ascribed in those contexts where it's like the next guy will be the guy, and he will make our life okay. <laughs> These two little girls entered into churches, churches that the scripture refers to as the bride of Christ, won and kept by Jesus, the only perfect husband. They found the place with the perfect man. And because that place had the perfect man, it was safe. And it was generous, and it was peaceful, and it was ordered, and it was kind, because they found the place with the perfect man. And I, I bring this to you this morning primarily to say you should be encouraged. You should be encouraged to be a part of the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And I, I want to say specifically to parents Boy, it's sure easy to freak out and worry that you're doing it all right, and you're not. And I'm, I always tell people now I'm way past the point where I feel comfortable offering any advice whatsoever about raising children. It was all God. It was all grace. I don't know how it happened. Thankfully, they love Jesus. But there is a sense of inevitability. Peter references it when he says, this promise is for you and for your children. There is this sense of, my goodness, if these seven realities are constant in my home and in my heart, okay, maybe I should not freak out so much because these things really do change people and they change hearts and they make places into generous places. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so long ago that these two little girls wandered in 20 years apart, wandered into local churches, states apart, and that they both found you, and that they were taught, both, both taught to sing a little song that just says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, little children, to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so.